and the end of marriage. Um, and what I mean by that is its origins and its ultimate end. And so I want to begin by thinking about the beginning of marriage. That's what Jesus goes back to in Mark 10, verse 6. He says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. On this occasion, Jesus was asked a question about divorce, and he responded by quoting from Genesis 2.24. And he goes back to the beginning to show the beginning or the origin of marriage. And so when we ask why there's such a thing as marriage, why are men and women attracted to each other? Well, that answer lies at the beginning, it was because God made it that way. He made male and female, and he designed the marital relationship for them. And one of the things that I frequently point out to couples when I do premarital counseling is that marriage is a pre-fall institution. Um, in other words, it was instituted before sin came into the world, and and anything bad about marriage is, is has nothing to do with the institution itself, but it has to do with man's corruption of it by our sin. It's like everything else. It is good. Like everything else that God put his seal on in creation, it was good. It comes from the Lord. It's meant for our enjoyment and for his glory. And when God instituted marriage, he ordained that one man and one woman would come together in a covenant. And that's, you, you may notice the difference between what we in the Reformed world refer to the marriage relationship as a covenant, where the Roman Catholics call it a sacrament. Biblically speaking, it is a covenant, and we'll We'll think about that in a moment, but the language that appears with the marital relationship in the Bible is covenant language. Now, Jesus quotes this passage, and he underlines that God made them male and female. Not only there do we have a, a clear distinction in, in the genders, but we know that in the marital relationship, the Lord calls men and women to different roles or different responsibilities. There is a God-ordained structure in this marriage covenant. Husbands are to love their wives, to love them as Christ loves the church. Wives are to follow their husband's lead and submit to them in the Lord. They are to help in him and serve him. And yet in our day and age, that, that very notion is is meant, met with much vitriol. But I, I think we too often fail to make the necessary distinctions as we explain that, because many hear that and think that we are saying that a woman is less than the man. So I, want, I want you to, to listen carefully to what I'm about to say, because R.C. Sproul, there's one thing he always used to say, the theologian has to make distinctions. And this is one of those cases, because this authority structure that is ordained by God 
in no way implies superiority for the husband or inferiority for the woman. This is one of, one of those distinctions that have to be made. And, and interestingly enough, we have to look to the Trinitarian relationship in the covenant to really explain this and think through it. Uh, theologians throughout history have made this distinction within the Trinitarian relationship between the ontological trinity and the economic trinity. Ontological, the Greek word ontos, simply means being. And so ontologically, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are God of very God, equal in power and glory. Each person of the Trinity is equal. One is not less than the other. And yet in the economic Trinity, that really refers to their function or their role in the covenant of grace. We look at the economic Trinitarian relationship and what do we see? We see headship. We see submission. In the, the economic Trinitarian relationship, we see the Father sending the Son. The Son has this element of submission. We've seen that throughout the Gospel of John. He talks about he only does, he only says what his Father tells him. There's submission. The Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and Son. In other words, the Holy Spirit submits to the Father and the Son. And so, even though these three persons of the Trinity are equal in their ontos, in their being, in their role in the covenant of grace, we see that headship. We see submission, and that in no way implies inferiority or superiority. And I think that's helpful for as we think about the marital relationship. Yes, there is an authority structure where the husband is the head of the wife, the wife is to submit as to the Lord, and yet we could at the same time say that men and women in their being, in their ontos, are equal. And so there's no contradictions there. That is one of those distinctions that we have to make. And I think when we when we root our thinking in the Trinitarian relationship, I think women, wives, that leads you to, I think, an often neglected truth. We often talk about Christ kind of modeling headship for the husband, and that's true. But have you ever thought about the fact that Christ actually modeled the submission that you are called to? And this is the argument that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 11. He's dealing with the issue of women not wanting to submit. And, he, and here's his answer to them. He said, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. What's he doing there? He, he's pointing these women to the fact that Christ took on that submissive posture, and it was to his glory that he did that. He makes that relationship. The head of Christ is God. Christ submitted to his Father. And so, while there are these 
respective roles and responsibilities, men and women are in their being made of the same substance. Adam or Eve was made from Adam's rib. We can say men and women are of the same stuff. And on this topic, Matthew Henry wrote, The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. So there is a, an authority structure in this covenant relationship, but it doesn't reply, imply any inferiority or superiority. And as Jesus teaches about marriage in, in Mark 10, he really highlights the, the powerful and unique nature of that marriage covenant, that it's really unlike any other relationship here on earth. He says, this is Mark 10, 7-9, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I think we can identify three ways that we see the unique and powerful nature of this covenant. And the first is that well, we should all love our parents and honor our parents. It is clear that there is a stronger, different kind of love that God has designed that causes men and women to leave their parents and come together in the covenant of marriage. It's, it's a different, more powerful, more special kind of love. And so at, at marriage, every couple should continue to honor their parents, but they no longer submit to them. They are in a, a new, more powerful covenant relationship. Uh, secondly, we, we see the, the strength of this covenant bond in the phrase, the man shall hold fast to his wife. Now, we, we don't have time to go into it, but if we did one of those studies, Bible studies of this phrase throughout the Bible, we see that that phrase is most often connected with the idea of a covenant relationship, specifically covenant faithfulness. One writer calls it vow language. It's, it's from this phrase that comes the idea, the biblical idea of marriage being a covenant, and there being the practice of wedding vows in the marriage ceremony. And then thirdly, we see the, the power and strength of this covenant bond and the fact that Jesus says the two are now one, that married couples are to no longer think of themselves as individuals, but as one. As our Lord says, you are no longer two, but one flesh. But all of this, biblically speaking, points to something greater. And so I want us to lastly think about the ultimate end of marriage. What's its ultimate goal or its ultimate purpose? 
Because the marriage covenant ultimately points to something greater. The power and the uniqueness of the marriage covenant points to a powerful and unique covenant that God enters into with his people. And Ephesians 5 <clears throat> answers this question. If you, We answer the question, okay, what is marriage ultimately about? What's it really all about? Where's, where's it going? What's its purpose? And if you want to turn there, you can, you can do that. You can turn with me to Ephesians 5. All right, we think of Ephesians, and, and we think, yes, it's um, Paul gives some very direct and practical advice. He, he reinforces this, um, the, the respective roles of husbands and wives. But at the end of this, you'll, you'll hear he gets to what marriage ultimately points to. Uh, from verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become flesh. And here Paul tells us what marriage is ultimately all about. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. We're being told there that. While marriage is for our enjoyment, while it has very practical purposes, that the marriage bond has a greater purpose. That it pictures to us the great love of Christ for his bride. It's designed to be a living picture of the gospel. We could we can go on and on with the parallels, but if we think about it, in an earthly marriage, a man leaves his father and mother. Well, Christ left his father. He left home, as it were. He took on flesh and he lived a sinless life. He died as a substitute for sinners. And what, why did he leave his father's side? To die for a bride that he would hold fast to. Remember when Adam woke from his sleep, that's when the Lord brought a bride to him. He brought a bride to him out of his side. And listen to Matthew Henry make the connection here. And he notes how this foreshadowed the cross. 
He says, Adam was a figure of him that was to come. For out of the side of Christ, the second Adam, his spouse, the church, was formed. When he slept the sleep, the deep sleep of death upon the cross, and his side was opened, there came out blood and water, blood to purchase his church and water to purify it to himself. In Christ, when he purchased us as his bride, we have that assurance that we are now one with him. We are no longer two, but we are one in Christ. And what God has joined together in Christ by his spirit, no man or power or principality can separate. And so marriage is very much for our enjoyment. It serves many practical purposes, but it's intended to show forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we read for our call to worship that passage from Revelation 19. What is, what is one of the predominant images of, of the church in glory when we are with our husband Christ? It is of the marriage supper of the Lamb. For those of us who are married, I think it's a good reminder for us that you know, there are practical benefits to husband leading and the wife submitting. Um, there are practical benefits for us in that, but ultimately that relationship is to show forth the gospel. When a husband leads his wife sacrificially with the gentleness of Christ, there's a gospel truth in that. When, when the wife willingly submits to her husband as to the Lord, it points to Christ's submission. Now we know that we don't do that perfectly, but we need to be mindful of that. The very covenant that we have entered into as married people is to be a living picture of the gospel. And, and I think that's a great privilege for us as married people, a privilege we should embrace and take hold of and, and live in light of. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you so loved us that you sent your only son. Father, we thank you that you chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be your son's bride and that he willingly came and died for us. And the Spirit has come and united us to Christ by faith. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of marriage. We thank you for the blessing of that companionship and the, the blessing of families. And Lord, we pray that we might live with that greater aim and that greater purpose in view, that in our families and our marital relationships that we might show forth the glorious love of Christ for his bride, the church. We pray in his great name. Amen.